thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. You're listening to a podcast from 702 and Cape Talk. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Hello. Um, Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist, is back with us this week. And we've just opened our lines taking our two, and we would like to take your science questions on any subject. Let's get the science um, down to our level and strip it and get to understand it. You know, um, this is an opportunity to satisfy your curiosity about the world we live in and find out more about the weird and wonderful laws of nature and the intricacies of the human body. But uh, there's a very interesting story um, today, um, Chris. Uh, hello. Hello, Chris. Hello. It's lovely to have you. My name is Nomboni Sokas. I'm standing in for Lady Klabi um, in this show. I see that you have um, a story on a program uh, called the Immune Reprogramming to Combat Cancer. Basically, this is an, a technique to reprogram immune cells to wipe out cancer that has been tested successfully by scientists in America. This is very interesting. I'm very, 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 very interested in this because I, I think the rate of um, cancer growth and, and, and cancer-related deaths in our society is very high. Can you talk to us about that a bit? Sure. Well, about one person in three is destined in their lifetime to develop some kind of cancer. So it's a very important subject. And for many years, people have tried to treat cancer in a range of different ways. Most of those ways tend to have quite significant side effects, and they don't always cure a person. There's a high likelihood the cancer may return. And for this reason, scientists have turned to the immune system to solve the problem, because the immune system, unlike other drugs and things you put into your body which can't discriminate between healthy tissue and a cancer cell, the immune system is very good at telling friend from foe. And what Stanley Riddle and his colleagues over from the States have published in the last week or so is a small trial of patients with a kind of blood cancer where they have been able to take white blood cells called T-cells out of those patients. They have added to the cells a receptor, which is a recognition molecule. It can lock onto the right-shaped molecule expressed by other cells. And they've put those cells back into the patient and they flow around in the bloodstream. And whenever they bump into one of these blood cancer cells, the recognition molecule that's been added to them locks onto the cancer cell and it then triggers the T lymphocyte to kill the cancer cell. They've done this trial in about 25, 30 people, all of whom were, were literally months from dying of their cancer and more than 90% of them appear to have made a complete recovery and they have no traces of cancer left circulating in their body and this is the first time people have uh, been able to use this therapy this successfully and, and shown that there's a real prospect for doing this m- more broadly and so it was, it was very big news in the last week or so that uh, actually we're getting to the stage where our understanding of how the immune system works can be used safely to treat very serious disorders. Well, this is a very interesting development. I mean, uh, so now we know that um, 
it's possible to make immune cells that recognize cancer cells and basically activate them so that um, they at- attack and delete the tumor, right? So that's what the study Yeah, says. absolutely. Um, now, what is interesting, I mean, that's what Chris Root, the, 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 uh, the, the, one of the researchers, has said. Now, what, one of the things that, of course, are always very tricky about um, some of these treatments um, that I would like to throw at you is how expensive this is this? I mean, you know, we are finding our... You know, very, very big development that is negative, um, negative trends um, in the developing world, or uh, actually everywhere, uh, of poor people actually having different forms of cancer, and um, and then increasing, um, you know, to communities that are not able to afford um, treatment. So, how, how how do you think this? In the, you know, I, mean, I know this is a very early stage, but I mean, how expensive do you think this could be? Could could this be affordable at some point? Well, I, I throw it back at you a different way and say India has more than half of its population not having access to a toilet. Yeah. But that didn't stop them sending satellites into space and a probe to Mars. Yeah. Now, depending upon uh, who you talk to, uh, they will defend that to the hilt and say, well, at the same time, we've got to be in it to win it. And the future is technology and the future is being ahead of the game. And it's worth investing this money to get us ahead scientifically and technologically and, and in all other respects, because ultimately we won't have half the population without access to a toilet or a phone. And uh, we will therefore be at the front of the pack when we need to be. So I think, yes, it's expensive in the short term to do anything. When you're an early adopter and you start doing things for the first time, it's very, very expensive mm-hmm. because the amount of labour and technology needed is, is extremely high. The first mobile phones that were on the market cost the equivalent of a year's salary for some people. Uh, now mm. they cost the equivalent of an hour's salary because if you buy a really cheap one, you can. Mm. And that's because millions and millions of people have bought them. They've brought the price down and we've optimised the technology and it's become very much routine medicine's the same and in the early days when we had Mm -hmm. treatments that were very very expensive very very cutting edge they were very very expensive but as more people had them there was more investment and they became more more affordable because there was an economy of scale and i think the same will happen here yeah i I hope so um well um please join us in the conversation with um dr chris smith the naked scientist let's go to claire hello claire hello good morning good morning chris um it's a, a question I have. I'm curious about it. I think you're familiar with Cape Town, are you? Yes, yeah, a beautiful city. I've been to Cape Town yeah, once okay. or twice. Now, so you know where Robin Island is in relation to the mainland. And I, a member of my family has done that swim from Robin Island to the mainland a couple of times. And he said, and it was confirmed by a couple of other swimmers, that the, the temperature of the water... It, you take off from Robin Island, and it's you know told it's it's 13 degrees, the temperature of the ocean, and then you swim for a while, and then you suddenly hit almost like a pool of warmer water, um, sort of clearly edged as it were. And he said, I said how big, and he said oh one one and a half kilometres, and then you're swimming along, and you go out the other side back into the cold water, and he said there are a couple of those on the way. And they seem to be in, in particular places, whether they move on different days or not, I don't know. And assuming that there are no sort of hot geysers pushing up from the seabed, what could it be? The ocean is moving all the time. How can they stay warm? 
Yep. Well, I think it's probably not anything to do with upwelling of warm water from the seafloor. It's much more likely that you've got warm water flowing off the coastal areas because where the water is shallow and it's on uh, the, in contact with hot sand, the water picks up a lot of a lot of energy from the sand and becomes warm and high in temperature. When you add energy to anything, it tries to move around more. And in the case of water, you make the particles of water jiggle more and we call that a higher temperature. And when that happens, they become less dense. And something that's less dense than something else is lighter than other things. It will float. And warm water, therefore, floats to the surface and colder water sinks underneath it. And so what you will find is, although water, and you think, well, it's, it's all one body of fluid, it should all just mix around, actually you will find that you get very defined areas of warm water and colder water. And if you go swimming in lakes and streams and things, um, as I have in, in many countries, you will find that the surface metre or so can feel very warm. And then if you dive down a bit further, suddenly it's, oh, very, very cold. And this is because you get these so-called thermoclines. You get divisions in temperature between surface waters that are warm, deeper waters that are cold. Now, that explains why the upper layers of the ocean should be warmer and the deeper layers will be colder. So why would you get these isolated pools of water? Well, when you've got coastal regions, there are differences in the geology and the shape and the subsea structure which will guide water and currents over these lumps and bumps underwater. And this can have the effect of pushing up uh, large amounts of cold water towards the surface and displacing the warm water into sort of circles or vortices. So I suspect that what's happened is where you're feeling that warm water is that there's an upwelling of cold water from deeper below or off the, off the deep ocean up, up the continental shelf, it's pushing up towards the surface, displacing the warm water into that nice warm pool you feel, and you're just running into the cold water that's coming up from the depths uh, across the seafloor in those places where you experience the cold water. I suspect that's what's happened. Oh, that's very interesting. I didn't even know about that warm pool myself. Um, I can't even imagine how it happens. But anyway, let's go to Salom. Um, hello. Hi, good morning, Chris. Can you please tell me what is, how does an air fryer work and how different is it to a microwave oven? Thank you. Uh, can you just tell me what? How does a what work? Air fryer. How does an air fryer work? What's an air an, fryer? An air fryer. Um, it's it's a product that is sold. Some companies like Philips make it. Um, I'm not sure how it works, which is why I'm asking you. Um, I don't know what the. It sounds like a brand name. I don't know what they are. What do no, they look it's, like? No, it's it's um it's a kind of uh, you know kitchen uta- uh, equipment that you use to to fry um stuff. It's it's, it's almost like made as um it, it would look like a you know a, a pressure cooker or something like that, but it isn't that. And basically, you use less oil in it, um, and you would use it to make fries and all everything else that you want to cook. Um, Okay. Mm. Well, I mean, I I think I'd better go and take a look at what one of these things is before I waste loads of airtime speculating and giving you misinformation. I'm really sorry, but because it's a brand name, I don't know what that is. I'm going to have a look at it and and I'll come back to you next week with an answer. How's that? Yeah, it means uh, air fryer, you know, using air instead of oil. So, you know, no, no, I understand the idea, but I want to have a look at what they look like before I speculate and get it wrong. Let's go to touch. Yes. Yeah. Thank you, Chris. Hi, number one, and Chris. My question is, and every time I hear shooting news, I mean, I get butterflies in my in my tummy, and then sometimes it causes me to even lose, I mean, appetite for food. I just want to know the cause of it. Why do we get that sinking feeling? Is sort of 
what the question is, isn't it? And the answer is that your body has what we call an autonomic nervous system, which is in charge of all of those subconscious processes that are very important, but you don't want to have to waste time thinking about them consciously. This includes things like how fast you're breathing, how fast your heart is beating, how high your blood pressure is. And there are two parts to your autonomic nervous system. There is the sympathetic nervous system. This one controls what we call fight or flight. If someone scares you, when you watch a scary movie and the person jumps out and pounces on somebody, or when you hear that music in the Jaws movie and you feel the hairs stand up on the back of your neck, that is your sympathetic nervous system. It releases lots of adrenaline into your bloodstream. It makes you breathe faster. It makes your heart beat faster. It makes your pupils of your eyes open wide so you can see into the distance. But critically, it also shuts off the other part of your autonomic nervous system, the parasympathetic nervous system, which controls your intestines. And it turns off all of the muscle activity in your guts. And the idea is you don't want to be putting a lot of energy and blood into your intestines when you need to run away because you need that blood going to your muscles to help you run faster and fight harder. So your sympathetic nervous system shuts off your intestines and when it shuts them off and all the muscles relax, you get that sinking feeling and it's your, tu and it's your tummy relaxing. That, uh, that is the sensation of butterflies in your stomach. And the reason you don't feel like eating is because you're wound up and uh, stressed because of the adrenaline. And the other effect that has is to suppress your appetite by mobilising lots of sugars in your bloodstream so you've got a ready supply of energy for all of your organs to pick up and use. And uh, that's why you don't feel like eating because you've already got a nice high sugar level because you've got lots of adrenaline going around in the system. When you relax later, the adrenaline level comes down, the parasympathetic nervous system kicks back in, turns on your intestines again, and you start digesting your dinner again. <laughs> Thank you very much, uh, Tosh, for asking that question, because that's exactly how my stomach was this morning. And, you know, uh, you know I'm standing in, Chris, uh, for Reddy Clubby. So, um, you know, bundle of nerves, butterfly, couldn't understand why I couldn't... Um, was that just because of, of trying to be Reedy Clabby or because of doing a radio show? No. <laughs> it could be stressed for two reasons. You, <laughs> it could be interpreted more than one way, what you've just said. Well, I'm not sure. <laughs> it's just the idea of actually being here and knowing that whatever my mm and ah is being heard by everybody, I'm kind of, oh dear. Um, so it's very interesting to know that my poor nervous system has been working overdrive. It's time for the... It's really funny that, though, because I remember when I first started making radio programs, uh, I think I, you know, it was about 2000, 2001, I used to devote about 90% of my brain energy to panicking and about 10% to actually <laughs> thinking about what I was going to say. And once I'd done it for enough years to realise that actually the worst that can happen is you might say something in a slightly awkward way and then have to rephrase it <laughs> and that no one's going to die, least of all me, then that equation sort of reversed and there's enough of a sort of stress to feel excited about things. But then instead now only 90% of my brain energy goes into thinking about what I'm trying to say and 10% on panic. And, and so then you start to make a lot more, so I started to make a lot more sense at that point. I think it's going to be a very long time to get there. <laughs> let's go to, let's take an ad break. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Welcome back. Before the break, we were discussing what causes butterfly in the stomach. My name is Domboni Sokasa. I'm the Friday stand-in for Reddit Labi. Let's take bubbles and hear what a question is. 
Hello, Bubbles. Uh, good morning. Um, when you apply face cream, how much is it absorbed? Is anything absorbed? Oh, hi, Bubbles. I, I don't know because it will vary on the co from one cosmetic to another. The skin is a pretty good barrier between uh, the outside world and the inside world, but that's not to say that certain things don't go through it. For instance, people who uh, use certain forms of contraceptive can buy a patch, a skin patch, that transfers the hormone through their skin into the bloodstream. People who are trying to give up smoking can have a, a cigarette replacement, nicotine replacement patch that you stick on and the nicotine goes through the skin. What those two different examples have in common is that the chemicals that are being transferred through the skin are both very soluble in fat. So things that dissolve well in fats and oils tend to be able to travel transdermally because there are fats in the skin and below the skin much better than things that are aqueous based on water. Therefore, whatever cosmetics are being applied, it would depend on the chemical makeup of those cosmetics as to how much actually goes through the skin. Now, most cosmetics, you don't want too much to go through the skin and disappear around your body because then it wouldn't be affecting the or pro providing a benefit locally to the skin. So most manufacturers are going to be looking for things that will stay locally on the skin if they're going to have some kind of uh, appearance-related effect or if you want something that's going to go through the skin like vitamin E or something to, to be an antioxidant and reduce wrinkles, then you want it to go further into the skin. So it will depend on what the, the chemical is that's in there and what its intended effect is. Right. Tini, what's your question? Tini? Tini from Midrand, are you still with us? Oh, yes, good morning. I, I want to ask a question. My father was a scientist and um, in the days many, many years ago. He would be my source for all answers. He would answer any question. But before he passed away, many years before he passed away, he asked me a question that I could never solve. It's about if we assume that the law of nature, that energy cannot be created or destroyed, but can only be transferred from one form into another, in an experiment, we have two identical small pieces of metal, exactly the same weight form. However, you magnetize the one and the other one not, and you take these pieces of metal and you put them inside hydrochloric acid, the exact amount of hydrochloric acid, and you leave them to dissolve. They will create um, hydrogen and water and some other chemicals. It will be uh, converted into heat. But what happens to the magnetic energy? Because if the theory of, of energy is correct, it should be more energy in some way released in the one that was magnetized. A very interesting concept, but uh, there's a slight flaw in the reasoning here. Let me explain what it is. It's assuming that a magnetic field is energy, and it's not. It's, that's a bit like assuming that gravity is energy mm. um, when you've got a planet deforming space and producing a gravitational potential well. When we magnetize a piece of metal, what you're doing is you are affecting the spin of the particles in the, in the material. And in other words, they, they, there's this concept of spin, which is that things can, you can think of it or visualize it like, like something turning in one direction or the other direction. Now, in an unmagnetized piece of metal, all of the particles have their own random direction of spin. There's no coherence. They're not all spinning in the same direction. And therefore, there's no net field effect because the spin creates a magnetic field, which is effectively a deformation of the uh, electromagnetic field around the object. And if all the things are spinning in random directions, they all cancel each other out and, and there's no net field. 
when you magnetize it, you align the spins on all of the particles so that the, uh, there is a net field effect. It's a bit like making the water go round in your bathtub in one direction by whizzing your hand round and round and round in one circle, one direction. Now, that is not energy. It is merely a, a conservation of, of momentum of those particles, the spin, effectively, in, in those particles. That means that when you dissolve those things, that instead of them all being organised in one material in one place, then they were just spread out through the solution. So regardless of what their spin was originally, they wouldn't all be coherent in one place anymore, and therefore there's no energy to be lost. There was merely a state of organisation. You do work in the first place to make the magnet. You need to use energy to organise the particles in the first place, but then you would get that energy back when you disorganise the particles and dissolve the metal, because that's, a, that's an entropy change, because it would give out hydrogen and it would produce some heat. Thank you very much, Chris. Um, we're going to say goodbye to you for this week. Uh, you will be with who's going to be standing in for ready next week. Uh, bye from me. Uh, it is 10.30. We are going to go straight to the news. Uh, Rigon Thor is ready with the headlines. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.